thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover on the show. Please be extra skeptical about what you hear on podcasts and what you see on social media. I should also warn you that I swear, I don't plan it or anything, but it happens, and I do not edit them out when I do. So listener discretion is advised. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters. Good day, everyone. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 37 of Living Through Extinction, a short to-the-point podcast that looks at the ways we can make things better for future generations. There is one research topic each episode preceded by stories relating to skepticism, which is sometimes the angry ranty part, the environment, and wild and plant life, where my favorite topics are the ones about unusual animals you maybe never heard of before. Following the research segment, I share something positive or a little something about me. I plan to slip in some short personal stories in the near future. I should have been mic shopping by now, but we kept having to return to Code Red around here, so my apologies, but I won't be sounding any better anytime soon. The world does seem to be returning to normal, however. Slowly, to be sure. But I get hope from stories of family members and friends getting to see each other in person two weeks after full vaccination. Every one of their stories reminds me that I will have those stories too someday. I want to play a board game or a role-playing game around a table with other people, and I want to hug people. But that's asking for the world right now. I am happy to report that I've received my first dose of the vaccine, but I live with teens who can't receive it yet. So I still won't consider myself to be safe for unvaccinated and or at-risk individuals to be around until my household is fully covered. Anyway, get vaccinated so I can hug you. Now on with the show. If you have joined me here before, I am incredibly grateful to have you back. If this is your first episode, welcome. I try to keep it both fun and informative and look forward to your comments and requests at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. I don't have a skeptical rant this week, so here's another skeptical podcast recommendation. Skeptics with a K is one of my favorites. It's put out by the Merseyside Skeptic Society and is hosted by four of its members. Three three of its members. What the hell was I thinking? One of the most important things I've learned from this podcast over the years is how to approach a study and what the right questions are to ask when analyzing a study. How can one be sure a study is being honestly represented? Those are very important things in the skeptical world. Skeptics with a K has taken me through the steps with real examples and real studies, both good ones and bad ones, and it's helped me immeasurably on my skeptical journey. This crew is somewhat serious, but still a lot of fun. One of my favorite episodes was the celebration one where Alice, one of the hosts, got her PhD. Woo! Go Alice! Skeptical podcasts are a great way to introduce oneself to skeptical inquiry and critical thinking. Look for Skeptics with a K, along with past recommendations. The Reality Check, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. And learn to be skeptical, dammit! Carbon capture is one of those things we mainly rely on nature for. Nature, unfortunately, is not enough at this point, and hasn't been for some time. We need man-made ways to accomplish this. 
The search for efficient man-made carbon capture traps has been going on for decades. The problems are the overall cost and the heating required to extract it from the water we are able to capture it in. The heating uses tons of energy and puts off a lot of CO2, making the net value minimal in the end. But now there has been progress. With the goal of getting away from using water, researchers work specifically on liquid organic solvents over a 10-year period, and one with all the necessary properties was developed. They now have a solution which can capture the CO2, but doesn't need to be boiled and condensed in order to extract it as is required with water. This is a big deal because that's where all the energy use was coming in the heating and the condensing of the water, eliminate enough output from the process, and what we capture could actually count for something. For those who want a visual, I recommend the diagram at sciencemag.org. If you want a super nerdy dive into the details, it was published in the International Journal of Greenhouse Gas Control. The results look promising, and even better news is that there are still other researchers out there working on organic capture solvents. So this method is going to continue to evolve, likely getting more efficient and cheaper as time goes on. For this wildlife segment, I have two weird animal facts to introduce you to. Both are about a defect. One is a deadly defect, and one, while strange, doesn't seem to cause harm. First, I was browsing through one of my wildlife sites when a headline caught my eye about scorpions dying from constipation. I scrolled back. What the fuck? There's an actual article about scorpions and constipation. Why? Of course, I had to know, right? And I'm glad I did because it was actually kind of interesting in the end. So I think we're all aware that some scorpions break off their tails to escape predation. This isn't overly uncommon. There are plenty of creatures able to do this. But... Scorpions have a major flaw in their anatomy. While most creatures with this ability, and most creatures with tails for that matter, have their anus on their main body below the tail, somehow evolution took a different route with scorpions. Their digestive tract goes all the way to the end of their tail, just below the stinger, I believe. Do you see it? The problem? When a scorpion breaks off its tail to escape a predator, the area heals, and they can no longer release their excrement. This results in a slow, agonizing death by constipation. The body swells over a period of about eight months before they die. So my question was, is it worth it? The death by predation would probably be quicker and much more merciful, right? But apparently during this slow eight-month death, they can still pass on their genes, and ultimately that's how a creature prevails, so they have continued on despite this major defect. Both males and females who lose their tails can't poop, but can still have sex. A male can mate with a healthy female and create many offspring, while a female can still have babies, but becomes limited by the space in her abdomen. Her offspring will be reduced by about 20%. So, yes. Scorpions who drop their tails eventually die of constipation. Sorry if that made you sad. On a less tragic note, I just recently learned about rabbits that walk on their front feet. They were first spotted in France in 1935, scurrying around on their front paws with their rear paws in the air. 
Recently, researchers believe they found the reason for this anomaly. A genetic mutation causes a malfunction in the nerve cells that coordinate messages from around the body to other muscle groups. This is the key to a balanced gait. We all walk around with a balanced gait all the time without ever even thinking about it. But there are many things working together to make this seemingly effortless thing happen. These bunnies have muscles that are just too difficult to coordinate with each other, so normal walking doesn't work for them. Amazingly, it doesn't seem to do them harm. By the time these rabbits are a few months old, they figure out that it's easier to get around if they just use their front paws, and that's how they grew up getting around. Admiringly resilient animals. There are plenty of videos of rabbits with this condition online if anyone would like to see some of these cuties in action. Just Google rabbits walking on front paws. This is a gene defect that probably would have been deadly to many animals, but not rabbits, because they're smart and tough and awesome, and cute and soft and fluffy, and I love them. So who wants to talk about their household paper products? Yeah, nobody. Nobody wants to talk about their toilet paper and Kleenex, and few people talk about paper towels. There's nothing romantic about household paper products. This episode begins a series of three centered around different areas of our homes. Today's focus is on toilet paper, facial tissues, and paper towels. Obviously, put a sheet of each in front of you, and they are all different in density, fragility, softness, etc. Even two sheets of the same item from different brands can be very different. But there are similarities in both the production and the waste issues with all three. They all fall under tissue paper production. Toilet paper itself is the one which is not considered a pollutant because it is supposed to be made to biodegrade. But its production has footprints all over the place. It's a tissue paper product, so highly processed with chemicals, bleaches, and ridiculous amounts of water. About 140 liters are required for a single roll of toilet paper. That's 37 gallons. And plants or mills also pollute local waterways. As a paper product, it contributes to deforestation, particularly in the Canadian boreal forest, also known as the Amazon of the North, as well as parts of Sweden's Great Northern Forest. You see, spruce and other coniferous trees produce long fibers that strengthen the tissue and is apparently the best material for making tissue paper. Between 1996 and 2015, over 28 million acres of Canadian boreal forest was logged, and the majority of this was ultimately used to make pulp for tissue paper. I've talked about the issues with deforestation before, but just a reminder. It leads to things like habitat destruction, natural ecology disruptions, soil erosion, soil deterioration, and much more. After cutting, the trees are stripped of their bark, and the bark is apparently just discarded. The remaining wood is put through a chipper and then goes through a process called digestion, where it cooks in giant pressure cookers with specific chemicals in order to break down the materials of the wood. Through this process, a pulp is formed, and this is cleaned with massive amounts of bleach to remove the stickiness. This stickiness is made up of the lignin substances, which held the wood together naturally. I mean, who wants sticky toilet paper? That sounds like a nightmare somehow. By the time this process of cleaning is completed, no original color remains in the pulp. Now we have clean pulp. Yay! So this pulp is mixed with lots of water 
and then sprayed on mesh screens. The water and chemicals that are left in the pulp are allowed to drain and dry. The sheets are laid flat and pressed and dried further. And when they're ready, they are peeled off of the mesh screens and rolled onto giant reels. More bleach is used on the product in order to soften it. And, well, I have to admit, if it comes to the toilet paper, I like the soft stuff, especially for my nose and bum. So I've probably been a bad contributor to this issue. A huge issue around something as forgettable as tissue paper is something called virgin pulp. Basically, it's what I just described using newly cut trees to obtain the pulp. Virgin pulp contains zero recycled materials in it, and for some reason, most toilet paper is made from this. It's probably obvious that virgin pulp would have a much higher carbon footprint. I came across estimates as high as three times the emissions of using recycled paper. In one place, I read that we are basically flushing 27,000 trees down the drain every year. For a bit more of a mental visual, I found these global annual use stats for toilet paper in particular. So in one year worldwide, we use 42 tons of toilet paper, which is 184 million rolls, 22 billion kilometers, or 2.2 square kilometers. The amount of toilet paper being used could circle the planet every 10 minutes. It could go to the sun and back every seven days. It could cover an area three times the size of France in a year. And it cuts 712 million trees and uses 1,165 million tons of water and 78 million tons of oil. Again, that was per year. Of course, the worst of us are in North America as usual. The U.S. has a higher per capita use of toilet paper than elsewhere in the world, with an average American using 24 rolls per year. For perspective, they contain 4% of the world's population, but use 20% of the world's supply of toilet paper. And apparently up to 70% of the world's population doesn't even use toilet paper at all. Most of this information also pertains to Kleenex and paper towels. The debate between paper towels and hand dryers continues. When I consider the materials used to make a hand dryer, the energy required for its use, and then the hygiene factors involved, I am actually on team paper towel all the way. There's debate about whether cloth tissues and rags are more efficient in the long run as well, rather than using paper towels. My experience has been that when I add them to my regular wash, I'm not using any extra water, so I don't see where their use causes a problem. They don't take up a load all for themselves. Maybe that would be different if that was all I used, though. I don't know which side I fall on here just yet. I may have to actually go cloth only for a month, and then maybe I can have an actual position. Hopefully it's obvious that switching to wet wipes from toilet paper is not the way to go. They are so much worse because they are made of plastics that do not biodegrade and should not be put in sewer systems. Recycled toilet paper and Kleenex have their own problems. While better for the environment, they are not necessarily better for us to use. BPA is found in higher levels in recycled toilet paper. The reason for this is because the paper comes from products that would have probably picked it up in the printing process. I can't say I have one, yet, but the truth is, a bidet is the way to go. In the past, my argument was, are we sure the water and or energy use of a bidet would even be better than using toilet paper in the end? 
and that has supposedly been settled. It's my understanding that their use has a very minimal impact when compared with toilet paper. They really do not use as much water as I guess I thought, and I've come to understand the actual hygiene benefits as well. Just have to get through my own biases and take the plunge someday, I guess. To end on a personal note, I would like to call attention to the cardboard tube in the middle of your toilet paper roll. It's my understanding that toilet paper rolls are the least recycled recyclable items in both homes and offices. Apparently it is very common, even in recycling households, for toilet roll tubes to end up in the bathroom garbage. And think about offices for a minute. Who is going to take the roll out of the bathroom with them and walk through the office with it to throw it in the recycle bin? Well, me, but I never claim to be normal. I'm rarely in the back at work anymore, but many years ago I put a box in the bathroom back there with a sign that just said, please throw the empty rolls in here instead of the garbage. And that totally worked. I would check now and then and dump the box in one of the big bins if it was getting full. So if you want to steal that idea for your home or business bathroom, please do. Too many toilet paper rolls are ending up in landfills. Of course, we need to have consideration for all paper products, but maybe try a little harder to remember to include that little TP roll in your recycle bin. I am thrilled to be sharing this news of progress in a critical area of cancer care. The leading cause of death in cancer patients is the metastasizing of cancer cells. This is when cells that begin in one organ travel through the blood and colonize a previously uninfected site. Unfortunately, the most common place for them to end up are the lungs because both blood and lymphatic fluids are regularly being sent through this giant organ. Apparently, this is why 80% of metastasized cancers settle in the lungs first or only the lungs and nowhere else. The main reason melanoma is such a deadly cancer is that it is common for melanoma to metastasize, turning it into something harder to treat. So this is a big issue with many cancers. If the metastasis could be stopped, then treatment could be focused on one area and outcomes would be much better for millions of people. That is why I find this latest research so uplifting. It began when scientists at the Wellcome Sanger Institute put their sights on identifying the gene whose overexpression caused a metastasis to the lungs in mice. It was long hypothesized that it was the result of what they call an overexpressive gene, but nobody had ever identified this gene and put it to the test. With the use of CRISPR, I know I've discussed CRISPR on the show before, with the use of CRISPR, scientists can increase or decrease the expression of a targeted gene. But they have to know which gene does what for this to be useful. So hypotheses are made, and by trial and error, one has to narrow it down until... Tests show that when they increase the expression of gene LRRN4CL, there is a drastic increase of metastasizing to the lungs decrease the expression of LRRN4CL, and there is a drastic decrease in metastasizing to the lungs. The first tests were done with melanoma, so they repeated these tests with colon cancer, breast cancer, skin cancer, and bladder cancer, confirming the role of gene LRRN4CL in all of them when it comes to metastasizing to the lungs. Until now, this gene had not even been linked to cancers, but now with this discovery, they can start to work on a drug to target and correct it. So what we know, thanks to the hard work of these researchers, 
is that reducing the expression of this gene could help avoid metastasis to the lungs for many common cancers. And the knowledge base is now there to work on a way to target and correct this issue. And this will improve the outcome for millions of people. So yes, this story of progress made me happy this week. For a more detailed dive into the specifics, this was published in Communications Biology. This is the end. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 38 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed listening to and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to like, rate, subscribe, comment, and share. You can do this on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, or your favorite podcast platform under Living Through Extinction, or on Twitter under LTE Pod. There is also a Patreon under Living Through Extinction where you can get stickers, badges, masks, and more. Living Through Extinction can be found on most podcast platforms, but if you are unable to find it on yours, let me know and I will have that corrected for you. You can email me the name of your provider at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com.